Options activity has altered the investment landscape. Get an edge on this massive flow of funds with Tier 1 Alpha's Market Situation Report brought to you by Hedgeye. A daily newsletter of the latest moves in the options market and a weekly webcast featuring myself, Mike Green of Simplify Asset Management, and Tier 1 Alpha's Craig Peterson and David Pegler. Go to hedgeye.com research for more information. Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. Well, hello there. It has been a very long time. You're saying, where has Deep Dive with Danielle DiMartino Booth been? Well, I uh, actually, I've been in Culver, Indiana, uh, trying to escape the heat of my hometown, Dallas, which I think was 109 degrees for what felt like months on end. Uh, and But now Labor Day's come and gone. I've got three kids at Culver Academy. I've got my sophomore at UT in Austin. Uh, and speaking of Austin, I could not be more pleased. This is a belated birthday gift to myself. I had a birthday Sunday. My birthday gift to myself is spending an hour live with my mentor, Dr. Lacey Hunt, coming to us from Austin, Texas today. Welcome back. It is so good to see you. Great to see you, Danielle. Always a pleasure. Uh, Always. Let's um, let's get started, Lacey. Um, I probably have an inkling as to the answer to this question, but um, I'm, I'm curious, where are you in the soft landing hard landing camp. It was intriguing yesterday afternoon at the press conference. You might agree that it seemed like the summary of economic projections projected a soft landing. And yet when a Reuters reporter asked Jay Powell whether that was his base case, he interrupted the reporter and said, no, no. So that was a fascinating moment in FOMC press conference history we know, we know soft landing's not his base case, even though it's probably a big boo-boo that he said that out loud. Where are you? I think the U.S. economy is in a very perilous state. Well, first, first of all, let me say that this has been a very humbling year, and I want folks to know that I recognize that the thing has not developed along the lines that I anticipated. And having said that, I, I think the U.S. economy is a very perilous state. I think uh, among the problems that we face are that both fiscal and monetary policy are contractionary, and significantly so. Now, I know people don't agree on fiscal policy. Uh, they think it's somehow stimulative in fighting the Fed. Uh, but the fact of the matter is fiscal policy is, is um, absorbing uh, net resources from the private sector, and uh, it's it's created a very severe obstacle to economic growth, not not just for 2024, but for for years to come. And also that monetary policy is very restrictive, and and we can see this in in numerous ways. Uh, there's a there's a major contraction in uh, important measures of money in real terms. Uh, money is declining on a, on a 12-month, 24-, 36-month basis. Uh, the bank credit 
is also declining on a 12, 24, and 36-month basis. And this is, this is an important uh, contra-normal cyclical development. Um, bank credit does not turn negative until you're already well into a recession. Mm-hmm. Most of the cases, it doesn't turn negative until the recession is already over. That's when the banks start seeing the big loan losses and tighten credit standards. Mm-hmm. Here we've had a significant tightening in credit standards without the recession. Um, the real federal funds rate is higher. Um, and uh, in my opinion, um, uh, it's going to go even higher if the Fed, with the Fed even holding rates, because uh, as the economy gets weaker, folks are going to ratchet down their inflationary expectations, and the real rate is going to rise. What we've been experiencing so far is an active increase in the real Fed funds. Uh-huh. We're getting ready to experience a passive rise. But either way, they're equally damaging to the economy. Um, and and uh, the yield curve is inverted. Uh, people say, well, the likes haven't worked this time. Well, I don't agree with that. Um, I, t- I tend to look at the financial cycle leading the GDP cycle, which leads the price-labor cycle. Um, by my calculation, um, the financial cycle leads the GDP cycle by about five to seven quarters. The peak was in the, per- the fourth quarter of 2021. Mm-hmm. We're in the seventh quarter right now. Uh, the fourth quarter will be the eighth. First quarter will be the ninth. Uh, the The economy could buckle at any time in here. So, Lacey, I- I'm gonna um, I'm gonna interrupt you for a minute because I want you to go back to something that I think a lot of people are confused about. Now, they shouldn't be. Um, I'm I'm a day late because of Fed Day in the UN and New York and how crazy it is up here in publishing my weekly quill. But I looked back at ISM new orders and I compared that to the fiscal impulse as a percentage of GDP. Lacey, would you believe that ISM new orders have been in contraction for five quarters despite the U.S. government spending, quote unquote, trillions of dollars on construction, infrastructure, green initiative, electric vehicle factories. But you said that the fiscal impulse right now is negative. How is yes. that? There's two ways you can do it. First, you can reach that conclusion by looking at the national income and product accounts. Um, one of the basic concepts in economics, uh, as you well know, Danielle, is the circular flow. What we earn equals what we spend. In other words, gross domestic income, GDI equals GDP. But, but uh, algebraically, uh, that you can rearrange that and you can say physical investment equals total saving. And total saving has three components. It has private saving, which is comprised of household and corporate. Uh, and then foreign saving, which is the inverse of the current account deficit. And then the government saving or disabled. Now, uh, the situation is such that in the second quarter, uh, we had a negative net national saving of, of about $325 billion. Um, the only time that it was more negative was during the great financial crisis. Now, net national saving is a strategic value variable as a cyclical variable. Um, historically, net national saving uh, does not begin a downturn until the economy is already in a recession. 
and here we are, we, we're not only have turned down in a contra-normal pattern, but uh, we are extremely negative. And, and the reason it's negative is because the federal budget deficit is more than absorbing all of the saving from the private sector plus the foreign sector. And that, that, that is a, a, a very serious impediment because, because you, you have to have an increase in net national saving to fund an increase in the capital stock. So let, let's say that uh, the political process wanted to increase the funding of the uh, CHIPS program and so-called Inflation Reduction Act by another $100 billion a year, and it will double its size over the next 10 years. Um, the resources would have to be clawed out of the private sector, somewhere else in the private sector. Uh, if we if we have new developments that are coming along that need funded, uh, they're going to have to be clawed out. The, the federal government is at the, at the front of the line, and, and to have negative net national saving is an indication that fiscal policy is is contractionary. And you can also reach the same conclusion uh, by looking at the financial flows. Um, in the first um, 11, well, based on the way it looks for the fiscal year, I'll give a few projections. I'll be, be off a little bit. It looks like that the deficit, if we back out the uh, student loans, which were added last year and then taken out this year, um, the, the budget deficit will be a trillion dollars for fiscal year 2023. I'm sorry, it will be two trillion dollars, which is a billion dollars more than it was in fiscal 2022. Uh, however, the private domestic non-bank and private domestic non-bank sector has funded all of that deficit. In addition, the private domestic non-bank sector uh, has bought. Uh, almost another trillion dollars of government uh, paper that was issued in years prior to 2023. In other words, there's been a transference from of funds from the critical private sector of, of three tri- trillion dollars into financing the government. And and private dollars and government dollars are not equivalent because the private dollars have a positive multiplier. And the government uh, dollars have a negative multiplier, and and so it, it really doesn't matter whether you use the national income and product accounts, or if you if you use the financial flows. Fiscal policy is contraction, and and to to right this ship, uh, we will, we're going to have to restore uh, national saving into a positive range. It's got to be very difficult to do in the current environment. So fiscal policy is not just a problem now. It's going to be a problem for years to come. So um, step back from the United States for a minute. I'm going to ask you another broad question because that, there's another narrative running around out there that, um, and we hear it every few decades or so, that the U.S. economy has decoupled from the rest of the world. I, I heard it from a credible source uh, just this morning that China is actually selling its oil to raise U.S. dollars because it's not selling enough of the stuff it produces to the rest of the world. We're talking about global trade here. Can the U.S. decouple? Does it matter that Germany is in recession? Yes, it, it does greatly matter. Um, one of the things that all economies need are the high multiplier sectors. And uh, 
we all know that uh, capital spending is a high multiplier of the big term uh, ticket durable goods, capital equipment, investment and plan, um, infrastructure. Um, but 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 one of the highest multiplier sectors, uh, because the benefit comes from the rest of the world, is the is the export multiplier. And and here uh, we we really have a a very ominous situation, uh, thanks to the Dutch. They've computed a a volume of world trade. Uh, the series only goes back to the early 1990s, uh, but but uh, this uh, indicator uh, tur- always turns negative in recessions. It did so in the 2000 2001 recession, of course, the Great Financial Crisis. But it doesn't typically turn uh, negative until you're midway through the recession. Here we are. Uh, with the U.S. economy uh, presumably a very robust, Fed just upgraded its, its projections to solid. I wouldn't have done that by a long shot. I don't consider this economy solid at all; highly vulnerable. Um, but 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 we but we we've been seeing declining world trade volumes since late last year, and they've been getting worse, uh, which indicates that there really is no one. This able to play a leadership role. Um, the rest of the world needs our help. We're not able to give it, and we need the help from the rest of the world. And we're in in this quagmire. And I think that there are uh, reasons that the unified is 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 in a downturn. I said that that fiscal policy is contractionary in the United States. I believe the same is true uh, in Japan, in China, and in Europe. Uh, uh, and uh, in addition to that, um, uh, we have we all have terrible demographics. Demographics are destiny. Um, the United States has the best demographics. The, the average age here is about 39, 38 years. That's older than we've ever been before. But you go to China, the average age is 42. Europe, um, Europe China's 40. Europe's 42. Japan's 48. You need young, vibrant, dynamic economies, and um, we're all uh, extremely over indebted. Uh, I, I believe that people there. There's been some excitement because China uh, went to the well of creating more debt, eased monetary policy. Uh, we've seen that happen many times in, in Japan. It gives it gives highly indebted economies a brief lift, and then it's over with. Right, and exactly. the debt becomes a problem, and. Um, uh, that's where we all are. There, there's, there's no one really to lead. Uh, no, no, there's not. I mean, people forget that Germany is the third largest exporting nation after China and the United States. To see all of them hobbled at the same time, I mean, it, it, it takes me back to the one year that you didn't mention, which was t- 20, 2019. And 2019, global trade contracted for the full year, which you have taught me well. Since the double-dip recession of the early 1980s, the U.S. recession has not skirted recession if global trade turns negative for the full year. No. It, as a matter of fact, I, I think it, one, of the, one of those things that was, the pandemic was very unfortunate. We lost a lot of lives. High treasure was spent. But um, the U.S. and the global economy was, was probably heading into recession in 2020. 
if you'll remember, we've had a big collapse in the monetary and credit aggregates. The yield curve uh, had not gone negative, but it had gone flat. World trade was was declining. Uh, and then the pandemic came, and uh, there was the fiscal and monetary response, which was extremely excessive, which created the problem, brought on the inflation. Um, but the fact of the matter is the, the economy would have found itself in very, very challenging circumstances in 2020 and 2021. And, and one of the critical indicators that was leading the way was the volume of world trade, critical indicator to see. So, so Lacey, it sounds like what you're describing is an economy that has gone full round trip back to where it was in 2019, except for the fact that a lot of government money has been spent and done a whole lot of nothing for global productivity. No, it, it has not changed. And, and but it, what it has done is it has devastated um, the standard of living of about 120 million Americans. Uh, uh, the, the pandemic response was entirely excessive. Uh, as you've written, Danielle, I'm well aware uh, the Federal Reserve really stepped outside the bounds of the Federal Reserve Act, uh, behaved in a manner that uh, they really should not have. No one really challenged them because of the fact that we were in the pandemic. Uh, but the net result was that we, we had very rampant inflation. Uh, virtually everyone is robbed by inflation. Um, but I, I, I've, I, I want to give you a couple of statistics which, which indicate just how damaging the, the inflation has been. Um, you can look at, at real average weekly earnings, which uh, uh, covers about 120 million people of all of our full-time hourly and salaried workers. Um, and in the last 12 quarters, which would be the 12th quarter since the pandemic ended, uh, we've had a decline of about two and a half percent. Now we've had other declines that were greater. We had one, you know, in the late late seventies, early eighties, inflation was, was even higher then than it is now. But um, the this is almost totally unprecedented for a non-recessionary period. But of even more interest is what has happened to real median household incomes. Uh, we spent all this money. The Fed revved up the money supply. Uh, they brought on the rapid inflation. And uh, a median income in, in 2022 uh, is back where it was in 2018. Three, three solid that. years. And I, I, I want to clarify this point because you're breezing over it because we both know what you're talking about but we've never seen three consecutive years of negative real median income outside of recession as in no, that is exactly that is exactly right and and the thing about it is typically in expansions if the expansion is any good at all the median income claws its way back to the cyclical peak this time we kept moving further and further away mm -hmm. from the cyclical peak and, and so uh, we had the pandemic response, but it, it, it blew up uh, in the economy space. And, and most significantly, it was quite damaging to the modest and moderate income households. And one of the things that uh, uh, we have to give the Fed some credit for is that 
Chairman Powell is now aware of how devastatingly negative high inflation can be for so many people. Uh, this 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 in the pandemic response and the inflation that we brought on uh, has cost us very dearly. Uh, cost us very uh, dearly and what it did to our, most of our people, and it's created this highly unbalanced fiscal situation. So, so Lacey, I agree with you, and I have for a very long time been warning that Powell was going to find his religion. But to go back to my days at the Federal Reserve and your days at the Federal Reserve, the change agent was the transmission mechanism for delivering for delivering all of the stimulus. We removed, by monetizing the debt, the Federal Reserve removed as an intermediary, as the arbiter of, of credit, the entire banking system. Money was helicoptered out, directly deposited into U.S. household bank accounts. I mean, talk about the transmission mechanism. Yes, they did. Uh, and by the way, uh, if you look when, when the Fed, when, when Powell gave his uh, little statement over Zoom or whatever it was, the Fed's website, and he announced it, he said that he promised that they would stay within the confines of the Reserve Act, that they would not become a spender of less they would only operate as lender of lessons. Uh, but but they violated that. They certainly did. They, they used were not really appropriate. And um, so in essence, what we were doing with a port, there, there was some traditional uh, lender of last resort activity, but we brought in these, these other mechanisms that had not been used. And so in essence, we were providing income to people without creating an increase in supply. You know, the very definition of inflation. Exactly. And um, what's what's interesting uh, to me, uh, and I, I you, you've said as much, Danielle, but I think it's worth repeating, is that um, the the Federal Reserve, you know, they, they change their forecast and everybody bows down to them. But the Federal Reserve has a terrible record. Uh, when, when they were moving outside the Federal Reserve Act, they didn't see the inflationary consequences of what they were doing. When the inflation arose, they, they, they said it was transitory, it wouldn't last. Um, now they're forecasting a soft landing. Well, they, did, they didn't get their last round of forecasts right. They're not going to get the current forecast. Go back and, and look at how the Fed handled itself going into the great financial crisis. They never saw any of the of the excessive indebtedness, uh, the literally crazy situation in the housing sector. Uh, and uh, we were well into the great financial crisis recession before uh, Bernanke acknowledged that we were in a recession. Greenspan had similar problems. You go back to the deep recession of 73, 75, Burns didn't acknowledge it until October or November of 74. It was almost over. Uh, the, the Federal Reserve has a horrendous forecasting record, and there's no reason to believe that we'll get it get any better. I, I think that it was actually a significant development when at the prior uh, press conference, uh, Powell said that the staff had pulled its recession forecast. Uh-huh. Well, that, that, that's not a happy development because their record, their record is so absolutely bad. I shouldn't be criticizing and view of my position so far this year, but the fact of the matter is 
There's nothing about what the Federal Reserve projects for the future that ever comes to fruition unless we're in a slowly trending economy in one direction, and then they're okay. But uh, for example, uh, they they overpredicted growth and inflation uh, almost every year from from uh, uh, 2008 through 2019. Uh, so the, the the Federal Reserve's capabilities of of, of giving guidance uh, simply doesn't exist, in my opinion. Well, Lacey, I mean, part of it also has to do with the quality of the lagging data that they seem to be using to guide them. Because yesterday at the podium, Powell said numerous times, I have to be convinced post facto using very bad lag data. My other mentor, Harvey Rosenblum, I know you know Harvey well, but my other mentor, yeah, Harvey Rosenblum, when I was... The, the, the first lesson he told me was lag. The second lesson, which we can go back to in a second. The second lesson, though, was once you have three consecutive revisions to non-farm payrolls, up or down, you your labor cycle has reached an inflection point. Well, Lacey, we've had seven. I went and looked at the history of the last time the U.S. economy has seen seven consecutive negative revisions to non-farm payrolls in a row every single month of 2023 through July. Two precedents exist. That's it. The double dip recession of the early 1980s and the great financial crisis. But here's your here's your here's the difference between then and now. We were coming out of recession by the time we had the seventh negative revision. What on earth is going on at the Bureau of Labor T- T- Statistics, the Department of Labor? I've have you ever seen data that is this revised? No, and and not only. Uh have we seen these back two months, but we revived it. By my count, uh, um, the two-month prior revisions announced every month through February have been revised down. Uh, the April numbers were revised slightly higher. But more importantly, um, we saw a, for me at least, and which buttresses your point, is that uh, the government puts out uh, the quarterly census of employment and wages which is uh, basically the full count of the labor markets. Now, it, it's only available for the 12 months ending March of this year. But what we saw in that 12-month period was that private employment was overstated by the monthly projection process uh, by 350,000. There was a, a, a overestimation by about three-tenths of 1%, mm-hmm. whereas the average error is plus or minus one-tenth. So they've been missing on a longer-term basis. They're missing on a short-term basis. Um, and I think what we're going to see when we get the benchmark data, uh, which we're gonna, a lot of components of the economy are going to be revised next week. But one of the things that's going to be coming down is wage and salary income mm-hmm. because they, they greatly missed uh, the, the actual employment uh, for the 12 months uh, from March of last year and March of this year. Um, so the, the, the Federal Reserve uh, is, uh, is keyed on variables, lagging variables. They're keyed on variables uh, that have a history of being revised quite significantly. And they ignore the important variables that they control. The federal funds rate, bank credit, uh, money supply, and they even have an influence on, on the yield curve. You know, um, Harvey Campbell has done outstanding work on the yield curve. 
and he's shown how effective the yield curve works. But it works with a long lag. There, there's nothing to suggest that this inversion of the yield curve, along with all of the other monetary measures, are wrong. Mm-hmm. They're, they, they, they require these lags to occur. And when the Federal Reserve chucks these lag relationships out, except uh, to sort of give lip services to monetary policy lags, but to not keep policy off of uh, basically means that the Federal Reserve is going to over-restrain the economy. And this is, this is the problem that Milton Friedman identified, that discretionary monetary policy failed. It's the same argument that was later uh, amended by John Taylor of Stanford University. Uh, discretionary monetary policy has worked very badly. Uh, the Federal Reserve overstimulates boom, produces too much inflation. They create a crisis, which they themselves try to come to, to correct and trying to, to correct a situation that they themselves caused and imposed upon the overall economy. They create the next cycle. So we're going from one monetary miscue to another monetary miscue. And, well, uh, and, and the fact... Uh, Lacey, let, 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 let's stop and talk about money for a little bit. Um, there seems to be a good amount of confusion uh, in the public purview about the difference between stock and flow. And I, I, I want you to kind of walk us through, by the way, the Fed's real-time weekly data Friday afternoon after the close of the markets. We get the H8. They have live data on other deposits at U.S. Commercial Bank within, within their liabilities. Why are they ignoring the, the flow and sticking with the stock? It's a debate that was ongoing when I was at the Fed, but it's it's their data and it's real time. Well, I would say that they're also ignoring the real federal funds rate too, uh, and and you know uh, the, the, we could go back to this point that there are passive increases in funds rate and they're re- they're active, and if if inflationary expectations ratchet down, the real federal funds rate's going to be rising even further with the Fed sitting there thinking that they are in a status quo position when they're not. Um, but the one of the real problems of the Federal Reserve, in my opinion, is that there is no diversity of opinion. Um, the Fed has a lot of bright people, but they all think the same way. Mm-hmm. And yes, they, they do. are basic. They're basically neo-Keynesians. There's no, there's virtually no monetarists or real business cycle theorists, no Austrians. No sound money, uh, none got of it. Diversity in every other way, but but they 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 also are controlled by groupthink. Um, there was a great um, there was a great social psychologist at Yale, Irving Janis, book by that title, and what what Janis. Uh, learned when he interviewed uh, experts in different fields that if he brought them together and they discussed the hot button issues none of the experts would agree except on only minor issues but then when he interviewed people at their homes uh, or their offices he found that there was a much greater uh, diversion of opinion but the structure of the Federal Reserve is that there could be virtually no dissent and, and so a while there are pockets of dissent and critical thinking within the Federal Reserve. Um, 
there is no willingness to break with the prevailing view because if you break with the prevailing view, uh, you will feel you will be ostracized by the group mm -hmm. and they will assume that you are wrong and you're not up to date on your own economic analysis. So the whole structure of the Federal Reserve does not really suit the U.S. economy very well. Well, uh, you know, Lacey, to your point, just here in the last week or so, we've gotten news out that two members to the Federal Reserve Board for 14-year terms have been confirmed by the Senate. The, the body of academic work of these two individuals includes advocating for climate change, reparations, modern monetary theory, central bank digital currency. These people have another 14 years in a leadership position and they have views that are so far outside of the Fed's mandate that I find it unthinkable to think of what the next generation after Powell might do to the U.S. economy. Yes, and, and with the possibilities of what could come, what we have, uh, it, it, it's also disturbing to me. What I would prefer to emphasize is that we have Powell at least until 2026. Mm -hmm. And hopefully uh, he can um, can see the better path here uh, because I'm in favor of Powell of what may the other alternatives are. So that's that's the thing. People always not, not a very people accuse me of being, um, believe it or not, I've been called increasingly a Fed apologist. It's as if they never read the subtitle of Fed Up, an insider's you know, view on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Me, the Fed apologist, but when you think of the options, the alternative to Powell. And that brings me to my next question. Do you think Powell has enough time to, and I think that this is where he's going, I think Powell wants to jettison from the Fed's toolbox zero interest rate policy and quantitative easing as failed experiments and expunge them from the Fed's toolbox. Do we think he has enough time to accomplish such a big order? I think it's clear that quantitative easing has failed. It's failed in several responses because uh, by itself, if they operate within the confines of the Federal Reserve Act, they're ineffective. Mm -hmm. um, if they operate outside the confines of the Federal Reserve Act, use the channels that they use during the pandemic, then they work, but they give you explosive inflation. And so um, I think that the concern that I have, and it will, there are a lot of people believing that if the economy goes down, that you will see this monetary and fiscal policy coordination in which the Federal Reserve operates outside the Federal Reserve Act and we will go back to inflation. Now, I don't think that Powell would do that. Um, I think that Powell learned his lesson mm -hmm. from operating outside the Federal Reserve Act. And I would hope that the economy and the public at large have learned that um, by using coordinating monetary and fiscal policy, it's going to blow up on everybody's face. Um, the, this this happened two times in our history. It happened uh, in 1971 when the Burns Fed uh, cooperated with the price and wage control structure of President Nixon, and then during the Great Pandemic, um, when the coordination went in, uh, the Fed and the and the fiscal policy makers were said to be 
partners. But when the problem blew up, the fiscal policy partners were not there and the cleanup job was left to the Fed. And so I think that the Federal Reserve would be very well advised to not become entangled in any more deals with fiscal policymakers, that they should keep focused on the economy as they see fit, which is a separation of powers between the Fed uh, and the fiscal policymakers and do what's right for the country. And, and so we need to uh, hope that we can operate the way in which the Federal Reserve was intended to operate. And that certainly wasn't the case during the pandemic, and it's not certainly the case of today. Well, Lacey, let's um, let's you and me meet uh, in inside the Beltway and and reconfigure a new Plaza Accord of 1951 for 2024. <laughs> I'll see it in D.C. Um, right. Well, I, I'm on board. I'll join you. But so I, I'm not sure who else we can get to attend. Exactly. Um, that's that's the problem. The, the whole all of Wall Street wants to go back to the zero bound and wants QE. But but let's stay with the Federal Reserve Act for just another moment. The Federal Reserve Act specifically stipulates that the that, that the Federal Reserve can never get anywhere near a government sponsored enterprise. It's in the language that was written in 1913. And yet. What are your thoughts on the Logan plan, the so-called Logan plan, the idea the notion, which has never been tried, of potentially starting to reduce interest rates, reduce the Fed funds rate in 2024, while continuing to roll off the balance sheet, continuing quantitative tightening in the background. And in theory, in theory, if you take the Logan plan one step further on the intellectual spectrum, the the lack of prepayment speed that's impaired the Fed's ability to roll mortgage-backed securities off of its balance sheet. If you start to take the federal funds rate down, then you could theoretically begin to increase mortgage prepayment speeds. And in doing so, the Fed might be able to pull the plug on quantitative tightening when it comes to treasuries and play catch-up and roll off its mortgage-backed securities that it has not been able to. So there's my radical theory, Lacey. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think it's very feasible, and I think it's desirable. Um, the the Federal Reserve, by uh, engaging in quantitative easing, mm -hmm. uh, has really benefited a very minor sliver of the overall economy. Um, in particular, the large bank who own virtually all the reserves, and they get paid uh, this this rate that is currently yielding more than any other. Uh, rate on the curve. Right. It's a nice. Anything. It's a nice business if you can if you can be Jamie it's, Dimon. It's very nice business, and uh, the, the Federal Reserve needs to get away from that. Uh, another problem that they have is that the, the Federal Reserve now is running a deficit of more than a hundred billion dollars, mm -hmm. and the deficit is going to continue to keep climbing. So it it behooves the Fed for them to eliminate. Uh, the the securities from their balance sheet as rapidly as they possibly can, um, and I, I I wish they could do that, but I suspect that as the recession unfolds, they'll begin cutting the rates, and they will discontinue the quantitative easing. But I, I I the best that I personally can see that they would do is that 
at the time that they start reducing the rates, uh, they will probably just go stationary with their portfolio, which uh, may be necessitated by the, the downturn. But unfortunately, it doesn't resolve the longer term issues that you and I are concerned Exactly. And, you know, Lacey, for everybody who says quantitative tightening has a negligible effect. No, I, no, I have that. Isn't, isn't other deposits liable? Isn't ODL telling us differently? First of all, I get asked this question more times than not after the two of us visit. Can you give a very brief explanation of what ODL is for those who may not understand the very simple concept? Okay. Well, uh, other deposit liabilities are... Uh, all of the deposit liabilities of the banks other than large denomination CDs. And and those have time maturity and they they carry a market rate of interest and they're generally held by large institutions. So you want a measure of money that represents the spendable funds of the households and business sector, which is exactly what ODL is. Now, the definition of money has changed dramatically over the years. Um, and, and while people still look at M2, I don't think it's as relevant. Uh, it, it does include currency, and currency is a medium of exchange, store of value, and unit of account, but currency is falling away in importance. Currency cannot be used for large-scale transactions, and more and more firms don't want currency for a variety of reasons. So the currency role is is money, but its its importance is is, is withering away. Now, the M2 uh, has another difference with ODL, which would be the money market mutual funds. However, the money market mutual funds cannot create deposits. All that they can do is, is by offering attractive rate, secure existing ODL from someone who will buy the money market mutual fund, which they in turn reinvest. And, and Friedman made it clear that he did not believe that money market mutual funds constitute money, and I don't either. Uh, money has to be created within the context of the banking system. And so uh, ODL is really your, your best measure. And uh, in conjunction with what happens to the velocity of ODL, you're able to capture the, the influence of, of the Federal Reserve. Now, here is the evidence. Um, the other deposit liabilities are now down slightly more than $1.6 trillion. I believe it's close to $1.65 trillion. Don't hold me accountable for the numbers exactly. If you look at the Fed's portfolio of U.S. Treasury notes, bonds, and mortgage-backed securities, they have declined about $800 billion uh, in round numbers. I consider those to be equivalent to what I would call permanent. And um, if you look at the relationship between these permanent reserves and ODL, every $1 reduction in, in permanent reserves is, is having a multiplier of two, meaning it reduces ODL by $2. So as, as long as the Fed is engaged in um, eliminating uh reserves from its balance sheet, it's going to continue to pull down the actual level of other deposits. And this this has created something that has typically not happened. Well, it's never happened. The, the, the Fed has shrunk 
the availability of the actual level they've extinguished, $1.6 trillion of deposits. It, they created this money mountain in 2020 and 21 outside the Federal Reserve Act in many important respects. Now they have a vacuum cleaner on that money mountain, and they're sucking funds via the vacuum cleaner into an incinerator, which is being destroyed. And um, the long before we, we got into this heavy situation of, of uh, quantitative tightening and quantitative easing, uh, the liability side of the bank balance sheet leads the asset side. Uh, the, the banks do not have an interest in having the asset side of their balance sheet uh, messed with because that is the key to their uh, earning stream. Uh, so the Fed has is, is shrunk the availability of deposits. Uh, the banks are trying to hold their loans, so they're selling government securities. Um, but as we go forward, we're going to actually see, I believe, the nominal level of bank loans decline. And that will then further tighten uh, the credit process. Another element that is that is uh, beginning to take fold is that while the velocity of money has risen uh, over the last two years, velocity is determined by the marginal revenue product debt with one-year lead time and the loan-to-deposit ratio. In the second quarter, the marginal revenue product of debt declined, and so did the uh, loan-to-deposit ratio, which are suggesting that within a year's time, the upturn in the velocity of money is going to reverse. And when that happens, it's going to it's going to uh, reduce the Fed's ability to stimulate the economy. Now, when, when you have a recession, the Fed always has difficulties. It's, it's written about under the topic of pushing on a string. But we're dealing with highly indebted economy. And, and the marginal revenue product of debt is going to get worse because there's over a trillion dollars of, of a debt that matures uh, next year. Debt was taken on with very low interest rates. When you take an income stream and you divert it to interest payment, uh, that, that's the definition of non-productive use. And, and so the marginal revenue product of debt is going to decline. At some point in time, we're going to see the loans drop. The feds will, the, the commercial banks will be forced to buy treasury securities. When they do, the loan to deposit ratio will go down, which means that the banks will then be financing the government with a negative multiplier and reducing their financing of the private sector, which has a positive multiplier. And both elements will turn the velocity of money downward. And so the Federal Reserve will become increasingly incapable of stimulating the economy. And, the, and they will have a difficult, which means, that, that when the economy turns down, it is, it is a very false assumption to assume that the Federal Reserve will have much capability to restore economic activity to, to, to better levels, especially when, when national saving, that national saving is negative. Yep. And it's, we're going to become more negative when the, when the recession hits because we will get a shortfall in revenues in the household and business sector at the federal level, and there will also be an increase and the transfer payments. And so the economy is going to become very mired very quick. So, uh, Lacey, um, I said that I would come back to the idea of lag because that was the first lesson that I learned at the Fed. My question is, we're already seeing bankruptcies of companies with 50 million or more in liabilities running at the fastest pace since 2010. 
That's that's our starting point, if you will. Um, my question is, are lags rolling and cumulative? Are, is the lag effect something that's just going to happen in, in at a moment in time, in a vacuum, in isolation? Or do lags cumulatively continue to roll through the economy, the lagged effect of this higher for longer type of policy? Well, that's a great question. And, and it's one that I have actually dealt with before. Uh, I wrote a book in 1987, published by McMillan, and I, I discussed that the business cycle has five phases, not two. Uh, and everybody says there's the expansion phase and contraction phase. But, but I uh, split the business cycle down into five phases, three in expansion and two in recession. The three in expansion are revival, where you come off the recessionary trough. Then you have um, acceleration, where you begin to grow rapidly. And then maturation, which is the last phase of the expansion. The first phase of the recession, I call it ease-off. Uh, and then after ease-off, you get the plunge, which is the waterfall, which then leads you eventually uh, to the revival. Now. What I wrote at the time, and which I still strongly believe, is that when you're going through on a short-term basis, it's very difficult to discern between the maturation phase of the economy and the ease-off phase of the economy. It's only long after the fact that you can really identify when when you shift from maturation to ease-off. Now, I believe that we're clearly in ease-off right now. The, the manufacturing sector reached a, a cyclical peak last September, and it's declined since then, even though there was a, a, a dramatic increase in automobile production, which is about to reverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's right. a big adjustment. But there was nearly a 41% gain in automobile production between March and, and July, uh, which, which lifted the total and, and gave uh, aid to even if the strike is quickly settled. Uh, automobile production is going to fall in the second half of the year. And we have a situation now where the vehicle sales are at around 17.4 million. But they, I mean, they're at 15.4 million, but when they, in 2019, they were at 17.3. But automotive production has recovered to where it was in 2019. Mm-hmm. In other words, we've had a full recovery in production, but Sales continue to lag, which means that inventories have now been restored. Uh, and the the automobile industry uh, surge in output was really a last adjustment to the pandemic. And, and that prop goes away. And, and moreover, we're left with a situation where uh, your household income, uh, your average hourly earnings is down 2% in the last 12 quarters, but the automobile prices... Uh, adjusted for inflation are up something like 10 or 12 percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons why recently Cox Automotive did the calculation that one, one half of our households cannot afford a new car. And the problem is even more serious in the housing sector, where uh, home prices adjusted for inflation are up nearly 20 percent. They're, they're both extremely un, unaffordable. Uh, and so uh, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, these these problems are going to, to carry forward, and they're going to be a constraint on economic activity for a long time to come. And, and by the way, it's, it, in my opinion, it's not a tenable situation. 
where large numbers of our people, particularly the younger people, who we need to assimilate into the workforce, are not able to buy cars and houses. That's something that, that has always been a possibility with the U.S. economy, and now the home and car prices are so far outside of the buying range of, of so many of our households, we really do not have a critical characteristic of the U.S. economy. That's that's something that I, I would I can only say that that's just a tragedy, Lacey. I, I mean, it, and you're it is a tragedy. You're absolutely correct, and people forget that a lot of the millennials that moved out to the suburbs and beyond the suburbs to the exurbs of the Kyle Texases of the world, and they have a thousand dollar car payment. They're also the same demographic that's going to not qualify for student loan relief. They'll have to pay their student loan their their student loans back because they make too much money, but but still not enough. Um, I've, I've got one last question for you, uh, burning question. This was. Uh, this this came from one of our institutional clients. Um, what what are your feelings right now on duration? I believe long duration is warranted. It, it's been painful so far this year, mm-hmm. and it's as I said to you earlier, very very feel very humbled by the. But but I believe it's it's clearly warranted in the current case. Even if even if the rate should go somewhat higher over the near term, which I'm not in a, a position to protect, but I uh, predict, but. But I believe that it will be rewarded because of the fundamental problems that I've said. Uh, we, we have we have so many things that are unaffordable. We have a fiscal policy that's contractionary. We have negative net national saving. Resources are being funded. Uh, the federal deficit is being funded by funds taken from the private non-bank sector. The government multipliers are negative. Uh, we have negative demographics. Um, we have a global economy that is extremely sick, uh, and uh, uh, it is it is a situation that is not not conducive uh, to an increase in economic prosperity. In my view, you know, in, least- in that situation, ultimately, I think people will, will look to duration more favorably than they do today, which is very unfavorable. Um, you know, one of one of the one of the strangest phenomena I think that we probably witnessed. Uh, after the pandemic struck was the great resignation and people collecting their social security at a very young age, 62, the minute that they could. And I'm sure that you noted in the August uh, non-farm payroll report that 55 to 64 year old, um, that their labor force participation rate has hit a fresh high, a fresh record. And the same would go for working mothers who flooded back into the workforce over the last few months since the emergency food stamp program and the Medicaid rolls came back uh, reflecting that the public health health emergency um, had been stopped. And yet there's still this theory that, that there's a wage price spiral that's that's feasible. So your your thoughts on where we're headed with okay. wages and we'll 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 have to end it at, at that. OK, great question. Um, you do see a lot of articles on the wage price spiral. But the fact of the matter is. Because they only they only have it partially right. Uh, I don't believe in in, in 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 a wage price spiral per se. The way I would define it is a money price wage spiral. Uh, first of all, you get an acceleration in monetary growth that is not negated by a change in velocity, and then that leads to inflation. That's exactly what happened by the pandemic response. The inflation rate went up for a while uh, to close to ten percent. As a result of the fact that the 
aggregate demand curve was shifted outward and there was no increase in aggregate supply. So you get the inflation. Once the inflation comes, then there is a lag response that leads to an increase in wages. But uh, if the wages are raised and the Federal Reserve is shrinking the supply of money, which they're currently doing, then those wage increases cannot be passed through. And so, so what happens, if you think in terms of the aggregate demand and aggregate supply, um, in a wage increase, it shifts the aggregate supply curve inward, which means that you get less GDP and you get higher prices. But the Federal Reserve then, in the current situation, is shifting the aggregate demand curve downward, which is of money times velocity. Uh, they're doing it now all solely because of, of money supply declining. But in my opinion, in a year's time, they will be joined by a decline in velocity. Aggregate demand will shift downward, which means that those, those that are uh, willing to agree to substantial uh, wage increases, they're going to be left holding the bag. Mm-hmm. And mark, pro- corporate profit margins will decline materially. So and I think, I, I think I we saw that we, we we saw that with Walmart, right? Walmart's getting out in front Absolutely. of this trend by announcing that they're reducing starting pay. I mean, that's that's where Absolutely. we that's where we are, Lacey. Um, we, we we're coming up to the very top of the hour. We've only got a few seconds left, so I um I, I've got to get down to Austin. I've got to take in a few football <laughs> games. So um so I'm I'm going to come visit you, and, and I'll I'll buy you lunch. Uh, by way uh, of saying thank you so much. I'll buy you lunch and yeah. Okay, then you you buy me my belated birthday lunch. How's that, Lacey? Well, let me just let me just say something. I am so proud of you, Danielle. You just do an outstanding job. I look forward to reading your your commentaries every day. Uh, they're of high quality. The insights that you're sharing with people are first rate. It's clear to me, Danielle. I don't know where the energy's coming from. <laughs> But if, if they are just filled with uh, such keen insights, and, and kudos to you, Danielle, and it is a great pleasure for me uh, to be on here with you today. Thank you, Lacey. You have, you've, I don't know, you've made my year. Um, thank you so much. And <laughs> until next time, and to everybody in, in, in the Hedgeye universe, it's great to be back uh, with Deep Dives. And uh, I'm going to try and get Dan McNamara back on, talk about commercial real estate. And I will see you next time. Thank you so much for being here today. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal tax accounting or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Is not responsible for errors and accuracies or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the contents. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.